Welcome to Archetypes and Anarchy, a podcast created by me, Courtney Floyd, and my Introduction to Fiction students at the University of Oregon in spring of 2018. Episode 11, The Lady of Galarus. Hello, and welcome to Group 9's Archetype episode. I'm Zach Schrage, sophomore business student. I'm Ray Dolanek, a sophomore journalism student. And I'm Spencer Green, a sophomore undeclared student. We're here talking about The Lady of Galarus by Thomas Crofton Crocker. If you're not familiar with this story, we will summarize it before we take an in-depth look at the basics of the story itself. The Lady of Galarus is an Irish tale from Thomas Crofton Crocker's book, Fairy Legends and Traditions of the South of Ireland, Volume 2. We found this tale on D.L. Ashleman's website, pit.edu. Tale type 4080, which is categorized as water spirit legends, stories about mermaids, nixies, and other supernatural creatures who live in the water. This particular version was published in 1834 in London, England by John Murray. However, the original book was published in 1825. There's not too much information regarding the oral history of this collection of tales, although according to Google Books, the tales were gathered from Irish peasants and storytellers. With this information, we are led to believe that there is a strong oral history in Ireland well into the 19th century. This is a story about a lonely fisherman named Dick, who one day while out fishing for work encounters a marrow or a mermaid out at sea. He thinks she is very beautiful and her voice is a contributing factor. When he approaches her, he snatches her magical cap that allows her to traverse underwater before she can dive back in and escape. Dick soon offers her an invitation to live with him as his wife, which she accepts, starting a new life with him. Uh, These two have a happy life, but this was only after Dick could, could convince the priest to break his code with a little bit of gold. The Marrow and Dick eventually have three children together, two boys and a girl. One day, Dick leaves to go on a long-term fishing trip, which leads the marrow to snoop throughout the house. She comes across her magical cap and is rushed with all her old memories regarding her past and, more importantly, her family. With this opportunity to make her own choice, she weighs the options between staying with her family on land or returning to her family in the sea. Before we go into archetypes, it's good to get a basic definition of what an archetype is. In our class, we've defined it as a recurrent symbol or motif in literature, art, or mythology. And it's very ironic because we've seen a lot of archetypes on our story ourselves, including one that involves the characters called the Charming Prince. Dick gets this role of the Charming Prince because, in a way, he abducts the Marrow from her home and takes her as his own. Um, but that also places the Marrow in her own category as the beautiful damsel archetype. When she accepts this proposition from Dick, she does become his wife and lives with him for a good amount of her life. Another archetype we see in the story is the calm before the storm. Everything in the world of the Marrow and Dick are very, very calm before any of the plot starts. This is usually seen in many other fairy tales before any of the plot begins. Uh, The number three is another archetype that we see a lot in uh, fairy tales, and as well as this one. Um, usually the number three is used to find comparisons among things in different fairy tales, whether it be the three bears or whether it be the three kids of Dick and Marrow. 
There are two main setting archetypes, the first of which is that of the kingdom. Though this isn't explicitly mentioned, it is, all, it is alluded to um, as Amira reveals that she's the daughter of the Sea King. Um, another major setting archetype is the land versus the sea. The, the sea is typical of a setting for mermaid tales for ob obvious reasons, um, but this story focuses much more on the time spent on land in contrast, um, in, and the contrast between the lives in both places. Um, another major archetype is the sibling bond. Uh, this tale displays the love for family members by the marrow when she speaks to the ocean um, to tell her family goodbye as she starts her life with Dick. And later, as she finds her uh, magical calf, um, causing her to return to her family, uh, not without experiencing sorrow for leaving her husband and children. The missing of family members alters the story heavily, as in other tales. The last group of archetypes that we pointed out in this story was, one, the women's choice and desires, or honestly, lack thereof. The story revolves around a man manipulating a beautiful young girl, albeit with good intentions, to be his wife. Dick abducts the marrow from her home, the ocean, when he takes away her power to return to sea, forcing her to marry him and live with him on land. In mermaid tales, it's often normal for a man to steal the creature's power of, you know, their essence. With selkies, it's their skin, and with marrows, it's their hat. Throughout the story, she starts off as a young girl, and she grows as she has children, she lives with Dick longer, and she matures. Becomes a strong wife and a great mother, and um, the story plays out as a timeline for the life of the marrow as she grows. Even though the marriage to Dick was of her consent, she really didn't have an option when the other choice was to be homeless on land with nothing to lean on or be married to a stranger. When they get married, they follow the template of the charming prince and dance on distress in the fairy tale. When they have children, they complete the archetype of the happy family even though it doesn't work out in the end because the marrow jumps back in the sea and goes back to her other family. We are now going to begin our short telling of the Lady of Galaris. On the shore of Smurwick Harbor, one fine summer's morning, just at daybreak stood Dick Fitzgerald, shotting his dundee, which may be translated, smoking his pipe. The sun was gradually rising behind the lofty Brandon. The dark sea was getting green in the light, and the mist clearing away out of the valley went rolling and curling like the smoke from the corner of Dick's mouth. "'Tis just the pattern of a pretty morning," says Dick, taking a pipe from between his lips and looking towards the distant ocean, which lay as still and tranquil as a tomb of polished marble. "'Well, to be sure,' continued he, after a pause, "'tis mighty lonesome to be talking to oneself by way of company, and not to have another soul to answer one. Nothing but the child's of one own's voice." The echo. I know this, this if I had the luck or maybe the misfortune, said Dick. With a melancholy smile, to whom the woman, it would not be this way with me. And what in the wide world is a man without a wife? He's no more surely than a bottle without a drip of drink in it, or dancing without music, or a left leg of a scissor, or a fishing line without a hook, or any other matter that is no ways complete. Is it not so, said Dick Fitzgerald, casting his eyes toward a rock upon the strand, which, though it could not speak, stood up as firm and looked as bold as ever Carrie Witness did. But what was his astonishment at beholding, just at the foot of that rock? A beautiful young creature combing her hair, which was of a sea-green color, and now the salt water shining on it appeared in the morning light. 
like melted butter upon a cabbage. Dick guessed at once that she was a marrow, although he had never seen one before, for he spied the Cahaline Druith, or a little enchanted cap, which the sea people used for diving down into the ocean, lying upon the strand near her. And he had heard that if he could possess the cap himself, she would lose the power of going away into the water. So he seized it with all his speed, and she, hearing the noise, turned her head about as natural as any Christian. When the marrow saw that her little diving cap was gone, the salt tears, doubtly salt, no doubt, from her, came trickling down her cheeks, and she began a low, mournful cry with just the tender voice of a newborn infant. Dick, although he knew very well that she was what she was crying for, determined to keep the Kahaline truth, let her cry never so much to see what luck came out of it. Yet he could not help pitying her, and when the dumb thing's face looked up at him, all her cheeks moist with tears, t'was enough to make anyone feel, let alone Dick, who had ever and always, like most of the countrymen, a mighty tender heart of his own. Don't cry, my darling, said Dick Fitzgerald, but the marrow, like any bold child, only cried the more for that. Dick sat himself down by her side and, and took hold of her hand by way of comforting her. T'was in no particular an ugly hand, only there was a small web between the fingers, as there is in a duck's foot, but t'was as thin and as white as the skin between egg and a shell. What's your name, my darling, says Dick, thinking to make a conversant with him. But he got no answer, and he was certain sure now, either she could not speak or does not understand him. He therefore squeezed her hand in this, as the only way he had of talking to her, in the universal language, and there's not a woman in the world but she, fish, or lady that doesn't understand it. The mare did not seem much displeased at this moment's conversation, and making an end of her whining noise at once. Man, she says, looking up at Dick's with Gerald's face, man, will you eat me? By all of the red petticoats and check aprons between Dingle and Charlie, cried Dick, jumping up in amazement, I'd as soon eat myself, my jewel. Is it I eat you, my pet? Now t'was some ugly, ill-looking thief of a fish put that notion in your own pretty head, with the nice green hair drawn upon it and so cleanly combed out in the morning. Man, says the marrow, what will you do with me if you won't eat me? Dick's thoughts were running on a wife. He saw at first glimpse that she was handsome, but since she spoke, and spoke too like any real woman, he was fairly in love with her. T'was the neat way she called him man that settled the entire matter the matter entirely. Fish, says Dick, trying to speak to her own, after her own short fashion. Fish, says he, here's my word, fresh and fasting, for you the blessed morning that I'll make, that I'll make you Mistress Fitzgerald before all the world, and that's what I'll do. Never say the word twice, she says. I'm ready and willing to be yours, Mr. Fitzgerald, but stop if you please till I twist up my hair. It was some time before she had settled it entirely to her liking, for she guessed I that she was going among strangers where she would be looked at. When that was done, the marrow put the comb in her pocket and then bent down, bent her head and whispered some words into the water that was close to the foot of the rock. Dick saw the murmur of the words upon the top of the sea going out towards the wide ocean just like a breath of wind rippling along and says, says he, in the greatest wonder, it is speaking you are, my darling, to the salt water. It's nothing else, says she, 
quite carelessly. I'm just sending a word home to my father not to be waiting breakfast for me, just to keep him from being uneasy in his mind. And who's your father, my duck? says Dick. What? says the marrow. Did, did you never hear of my father? He's the king of the waves, to be sure. And yourself, then, a real king's daughter? said, said Dick opening his two eyes to make a full and true survey of his wife that was to be. Oh, I'm nothing else but a made, a made man with you, and a king your father. To be sure, he has all the money that's down at the bottom of the sea. Money? repeated the marrow. What's money? Tis no bad thing to have when one wants it, replied Dick. And maybe now the fishes have the understanding to bring up whatever you bid them? Oh, yes, said the marrow. They bring me what I want. To speak the truth, said Dick, tis a straw bed I have at home before you, and that, I'm thinking, is no ways fitting for a king's daughter. So if twould not be displeasing to you just to mention a nice father bed, feather bed with a pair of new blankets. But what am I talking about? Maybe you have not such things as beds down underwater. By all means, she said, Mr. Fitzgerald, plenty of beds at your service. I've fourteen oyster beds of my own, not to mention one just planting for the rearing of young ones. You have, says Dick, scratching his head and looking a little puzzled. Tis a feather bed I was, I was speaking of, but clearly yours is a very, very cut of a decent plan. To have a bed and supper so handy to each other that a person, when they'd have the one, need never ask for the other. However, bed or no bed, money or no money, Dick Fitzgerald determined to marry the marrow, and the marrow had given her consent. Away they, away they went, therefore, across the strand, from Gallerus to Bowling, Bowling Running. Their, their father, Fitzgibbon, happened to be at that moment. However, Dick had the Coheline Druith in his hand and was about to give it to the marrow, who looked covetously at, at it. And says he, Please, your reverence, she's a king's daughter. If she was a daughter of fifty kings, says Father Fitzgibbon, I'll tell you you can't marry her, she being a fish. Please, your reverence, said Dick again in an undertone. She is as mild and as beautiful as the moon. If she was as mild and as beautiful as the sun, the moon, and the stars all put together, I tell you, Dick Fitzgerald, said the priest, stamping his right foot, you can't marry her, she being a fish. But she has all the gold that's down in the sea only for the asking, and I'm a made man if I married her. And, said Dick, looking up slyly, I can make it worth anyone's while to do the job. Oh, that alters the case completely, replied the priest. Why, there's some reason now in what you say. Why didn't you tell me this before? Marry her by all means, if she was ten times the fish. Money, you know, is not to be refused in these bad times. And I may have well have the handle of it as another, that maybe we would not take half the pains in counseling you as I have done. So Father Fitzgibbon married Dick Fitzgerald to the marrow, and like any loving couple, they returned to Galarus were well pleased with each other. Everything prospered to Dick. 
He was at the sunny side of the world. The marrow made the best of wives, and they lived together in the greatest contentment. It was a wonderful to see, considering where she had been brought up, how she would be busy herself in the house, and how well she nursed the children. For, at the end of three years, there were many young Fitzgeralds, two boys and a girl. In short, Dick was a happy man, and so he might have continued to the end of his days if he had only the sense to take proper care of what he had got. Many another man, however, besides Dick, had not had the wit enough to do that. One day, when Dick was obliged to go to Charlie, he left the wife minding the children at home after him and thinking, and thinking she had plenty to do without disturbing his fishing tackle. Dick was no sooner gone than Mrs. Fitzgerald set about cleaning up the house and chancing to pull down a fishing net, what she should find behind it in a hole in the wall but her own Colleen Drewith. She took it out and looked at it, and then she thought of her father the king, her mother the queen, and their brothers and sisters, and felt a longing to go back to them. She sat down on a little stool and thought over the happy days she had spent under the sea. Then she looked at her children and thought of the love and affection of poor Dick, and how it would break his heart to lose her. But, she says, he won't lose me entirely, for I'll come back to see him again, and who can blame me for going to see my father and my mother after being away so long from them. She got up and went towards the door, but came back again to look once more at the child that was sleeping in the cradle. She kissed it gently, and as she kissed it, a, a tear trembled for an instant in her eye, then fell on its rosy cheek. She wiped away the tear, and turning to the eldest little girl, told her to take good care of her brothers, and to be a good child herself until she came back. The marrow then went down to the strand. The sea was lying calm and smooth, just heaving and glittering in the sun. She thought she heard a faint, sweet singing, inviting her to come down. All of her old ideas and feelings came flooding back to her mind. Dick and her children were at an instant forgotten, and placing a Colleen Drewith on her head, she plunged in. Dick came home in the evening, and missing his wife, asked Kathleen, his little girl, what had become of her mother, but she could not tell him. He then inquired of the neighbors, and he learned that she was seen going towards the strand with a strange-looking cocked hat in her hand. He returned to his cabin to search for the Colleen Drewith, but it was gone, and the truth now flashed upon him. Year after year did Dick Fitzgerald wait, expecting the return of his wife, but he never saw her more. Dick never married again, always thinking that the marrow would sooner or later return to him. Nothing could ever persuade him but that her father the king kept her below by main force. For, said Dick, she surely would not let herself give up her husband and her children. While she was with him, she was so good a wife in every respect that to this day she spoke of the tradition of the country as for the pattern of one under the name of Lady Gallus. We will now go over the cultural and historical background of the Lady of Gallus. The Lady of Gallus was written in the early 19th century. Um, Gallus is actually a real place. It's a small village in the eastern side of the Smerwick Harbour, which is at the tip of the Dingle Peninsula in southwest Ireland. Um, in the story, religion is mentioned um, as the, the marrow turns her head like in a Christian way. Um, also, it mentions the priest in the story. Um, this, as we found in or on the irishhistorian.com, um, 
The Catholic Association was established in Dublin in 1823. Um, these uh, Catholic views may have influenced the strict views on marriage represented by the priest's unwillingness to marry Dick to the marrow because she was a fish. Um, another piece of historical background is on the fishermen, uh, as Dick was a fisherman. Uh, so according to angelfire.com, um, in the 19th century, Irish fisheries were un underfunded, which led to a decline in work for fishermen and therefore a decline in fish. Um, this coupled with the potato famine was, uh, was that was occurring at the time resulted in a diminishing population and financial struggle for those who survived. The financial struggle that Dick was in uh, was revealed as he was enticed by the Marrow's, um, the Marrow's status as the Sea King's daughter. Um, and when she said that she had lots of gold and that the fish would give her anything, um, going off of the previous point about the famine, um, the famine in Ireland, or in 1816, the potato crop failure caused famine and tough times for all, especially those with little money and wealth. Uh, this explains Dick's fascination with the marrow status and money, as well as priest's change of heart, um, in marrying Dick to the Marrow once he was offered money. Neither of these men were necessarily greedy. Uh, they were just struggling to feed themselves and live comfortably during the time of the famine. Like Spencer brought up before, the Marrow was part of the royal family, although she was not on land um, and did not directly fit into the class system here. It would have been really attractive to marry someone into a potential royal family. In 19th century England, there were six different class classes, um, and they're super distinct, um, beginning with royalty and ending with those who are non-free. Um, Dick would have been considered part of the fourth class because he was free, he was a property owner, and who had he had some possessions. Um, like I said before, the marrow may not have technically fit into the social class. Um, however, if she was assigned a class distinction, she would be first class as she was the daughter of the sea king. Um, and going off that, when marrying into the royal family, it was highly unlikely that that would happen for someone in the fourth class. Um, marriage prior to the 1850s was important to women because it declared them their personhood and let, let them leave their families, even though it put them under the rule of their new husbands. Women's roles were to be wives, mothers, and domestic workers, while their men's roles or to work in order to provide for their family, doing things such as fishing, farming, even though the potato famine kind of killed that. Um, the story is interesting in that it focuses on more on the man's need for a woman emotionally rather than the typical reverse situation as seen when Dick regards himself as useless without a wife. Also, though Dick works, he does not make much money as a fisherman, yet the marrow has lots of money, so she must take on the role as provider of the family. Similar to how we went over archetypes earlier, I think it'd be also important to bring up some of the archetypes that are not mentioned in this fairy tale. Some of these of which are very popular in many fairy tales and you should expect to see, which caught us all by surprise when we were reviewing this tale as by itself. 
An important one is that there's no real prize or reward at the end of the story. Um, there's no golden goose in this story. Um, it ends very solemnly, but there is no real goal that the protagonist is shooting for throughout the entire tale. In turn with that, there is no quest. There is no goal laid out for the protagonist. There's nowhere to go. It kind of seems more of just a tale of two people's lives rather than the story of a hero. Another thing we notice that has gone from this tale is the voicelessness. Usually the mermaid, marrow, whatever it may be, doesn't have a voice when she comes into the tale. Or, throughout the tale, she loses her voice, which in turn gets it back. Even though the marrow in the story doesn't want to speak, she does eventually, and speaks throughout the story. The last thing that's not noticed in this tale is that there's no real sacrifice. Similar to the voicelessness, the marrow is usually going to have to give it up. But in this story, the marrow keeps it to herself, and it isn't really stressed about the, how there's any real sacrifice given in the story at all. No one loses too much until we get near the end of the story. One of the last elements of the story that we're going to go over is the symbols seen throughout it. There are many key ones, some more than others. One especially is the Kahulin Druith, a word that's kind of hard to say and hard to read at the same time. This kind of represents the Marrow's freedom, and as well as who she truly is. It's the item that allows her to go underwater for extended periods of time and is snatched by Dick in the story. And this is also found at the end of the story, which gives her her freedom, thus representing it. Another good symbol is the child echo. This is referenced by Dick when he's speaking by himself, because the child's echo is the only thing that he gets back. This is a symbol of his loneliness, and also ties into how he doesn't have a woman, and is still currently at that time trying to find a woman to start a family with. Another uh, major symbol is the land and the ocean. These represent a different state of mind for the marrow. The life on land represents uh, her false life um, that she was forced into um, and she was convinced to be a part of. She is hiding the fact that she is a marrow uh, when, she was, when she is living on land. The ocean is her true world and uh, where she can be her true self. Thus, uh, this is why she returns in the end of the story, uh, because you can't escape who you really are. Um, she can't stand being away from her home, and uh, she's even willing to abandon her family that she uh, created with Dick um, on land. Um, her true self is pointed out through the priest, which is another symbol. Uh, the priest represents logic and the natural state of things, uh, but like any natural thing, it can be influenced by money. Uh, this means throwing logic out the window whenever money is involved. So another symbol that's really important to realize is the essence of the strand. Um, the strand is the beach. Um, it represents the border between the two worlds, land and the sea. Um, it tells how she walked down there, waited a little bit, and then was influenced to go in when she saw the water, when she remembered everything, and how she left her family. The strand is present in a ton of other mermaid and siren stories and selkies as well, along with being part of lots of Irish folk songs, such as Scarborough Fair. Um, it's seen as a really magical place where anything can really happen, um, because it does represent the border between two worlds, the ocean, the sea, the fey world, the human world. 
um, things such as that. Um, some really important color symbols that come into play during the story is the fact that um, she had green hair. Um, she was beautiful, um, and it attracted Dick to her. Um, as she was calming it, it was clean, and he was thought it was amazingly gorgeous. And then he heard her voice, which entranced her to him even more. The green hair also symbolizes many other different things besides being an identifying factor for a magical sea creature. It's associated with growth, renewal, harmony, and fertility, which in the story plays out to having Dick get a family with children, a wife, a bustling home, more jobs. He was living on like the sunny side of life. Um, the green hair also simulates money um, that the princess had for being a, the daughter of a sea king. Whether it was land money or not, the influence was there of that. Another really important symbol that's common in a lot of fairy tales was the idea of numbers. Three especially, and also twelve, but three plays the main role in this story. In the story, there are three kids, two boys, and one girl. Um, there's three adult characters, the marrow, Dick, and the priest, who encourages them not to get married because it is wrong and she is a fish. They each play a different role. Dick's speech um, about a man and woman is super crucial. It takes place at the beginning of the story, and it shows what's expected of a man at that time. And his role is to find a wife. And at that point, he feels really let down because he's failed. He's not married. He doesn't have a wife. He's kind of underwhelmed with how his life's going. He's not making a lot of money. And so he takes every opportunity to get a wife even when it's a marrow, even when it's unconventional, because that's what he believes he needs to do, and he, she's beautiful, so that's an added bonus. One of the things we decided to add when analyzing this story is to look at the basic morals that go into it. And this is actually a pretty fun part for me, because you kind of have to look at the inner workings of the story itself to kind of determine what this story is trying to say. Um, the first one you usually pick up on when you read the story is uh, it probably has a potential moral for a man of picking a good wife. Um, man Dick in the story has a chance to pick any wife and decides to go with a marrow. And because of this decision, his family life is good, but it ends horribly. So I just have the idea that this could be kind of a moral for a young boy to listen to, to understand, oh, well, when I grow up, I need to make the right decision when picking a woman. She needs to be strong, she needs to be beautiful, she needs to be loyal. Um, on the other side, this could be a lesson for women in the sense of being loyal to a man. As is a moral for a young girl to understand how she should be as a loyal wife to her husband, to her man, how she shouldn't leave, um, relating to the story. Another idea for the main moral of the story is the consequences of dealing with the unholy. Um, a mermaid is technically an unholy creature, and could there be a religious idea from this sort of moral? Maybe that anything dealing with the anything of the unholy can result in bad luck or bad luck in the future. And but what's cool is that they also have people who are actually in the that have a holy background that can actually help you make those decisions in the future. And Reed has a little information on that. As Zach said, religion is super important, which is why I picked up on the moral of don't disagree with the reverend, don't disagree with the priest, they know what they're talking about. Um, because going against reverence, as Zach pointed out earlier, really equals bad luck. 
The reverend is the moral high ground in the story. He represents what's good and right in the world and how things should be done. There is a reason he refused to marry the marrow and Dick in the beginning. Um, he said she was a fish, and he was right. It wasn't holy. It wasn't natural for the two species to marry. But as time went on, as Dick protested, he slowly wore down um, as the idea of the corruption of from sins was brought into the story. Um, he's supposed to be the moral high ground, like I said, um, and a guiding light to those who are lost. And he really does show that in the beginning of the story by refusing to marry the two, um, clearly rejecting all justifications of why it's a good idea. And it isn't really till Dick offers the priest money does he change his mind. Um, he's been corrupted by only need, not only the desire to be better um, and to have more money, but to improve his own social status. And when Spencer was talking about the famine earlier, to protect himself. Um, when the Reverend agrees to marry Dick in the marrow, things really start going downhill, as that's the breakdown of the story from that point thenceforward. As we begin to wrap up this podcast, we're going to start going into the guiding questions to finish off with our closed readings. Um, one of the easy, basic questions we're going to start off with first is whether or not uh, we actually like the work. Um, personally, The Lady of Galarus was a very interesting story to me. Um, I really thoroughly enjoyed it just because of how happy and sad the story was, um, meaning it was very balanced. Most fairy tales we read nowadays have a huge plot that is totally terrible throughout the entire story and just ends up being happy in the last five minutes, where in The Lady of Galarus, uh, Dick was unhappy at the beginning and the end for only about a couple minutes, but he lived a very happy life throughout the entire story. Um, but I'm sure Reed has a different interpretation of it. Yeah, I really like this story as well. I like the fact that it was well-written enough that I felt the emotions as the characters felt them. Um, when Dick found a wife, I was super happy for him after the sadness of the child's echo. He seemed really, like, desolate. So I, like, rejoiced. I was like, hey, dude, yeah, good job. You found a wife. Um, I was sad when the marrow got captured, even though it made Dick happy. So it was kind of a counterbalance of feel those feelings. Um, and I was really happy in the middle part of the story when their life was great. It was in their honeymoon phase. They had children. They had a family. Um, so I was happy then, too. Um, but when the Mara found her uh, cool, her hat, I was, yes, go home. You were, you were captured. I, so I felt the emotions for her, but I also felt sadness when Dick came home. And it was like, hey, my wife's gone, and she's not coming back. So I think that's a mark of a really well-written story in the fact that I can pull a reader into it and make you emphasize with every single one of the characters, um, whether they're right or wrong. I think that just tells the strength of this fairy telling. What about you, Spencer? I agree. I really liked how um, at different points in the story we were able to sympathize with both characters. Um, I also really enjoyed um, the fact that it was different than the typical Little Mermaid story uh, from Hans Christian Andersen and um, the more well-known version uh, that Disney created based off of that. Um, as we mentioned earlier, the voicelessness archetype was missing from this story. Um, which is a huge part of The Little Mermaid. In fact, the Mara's voice was one of the main aspects of her that Dick really appreciated, and the main reason that he loved her and wanted to marry her. Um, and what's 
cool about this story being so peculiar with how it handles itself being a mermaid tale is that it gives you different feelings when you read it. Um, rather than having a happy-go-lucky feeling like at the average Disney tale, this one kind of leaves you with a little, uh, little distraught or happy if you feel that way. Um, personally, this story gives me a feeling of satisfaction because the story ends with a draw between the two characters. Um, the Meryl got to go home to her family. She also got to experience a family with Dick, but she has to abandon it. Um, Dick what, had a family, and he also got to have a wife for a short period of time, so he was happy. But he also has to end on the sad note that now his wife is going to leave him for the last part of his life. Um, I'm sure the story made Spencer feel a little different about how it went along. Yeah, I felt really indifferent about how the story ended. Um, I was unsure if the Marrow and Dick had a good relationship. Um, they seemed to be very content with each other while they were married and uh, as they had children. Um, it leaves me to wonder, though, if the Marrow would have actually chosen to stay with Dick had she had the opportunity to go back home in the first place. I think that um, since the end of the story, uh, she ended up going back home, that she might not have stayed with him. Uh, what do you think, Reed? Yeah, so in these type of stories, I'm actually kind of conflicted. Like, yes, Dick was a great guy. She did consent to marry him, so he wasn't really in the wrong there. Um, but like Spencer, I have to wonder if she didn't have her cooling through so long, would she have stayed? Um, it seemed like from the story that when they were married, she was happy. She did love her children. She did love Dick, and they had a really like good relationship. Um, but the minute she had her hat, like she wanted to go back to the ocean. She and she did think about, oh, they can't be like that. Oh, I'm just gonna go visit. How can they, like, you know, take away that from me? So I also questioned myself, thinking, hey, she actually did. She actually plan to go back, like, and come home back to her kids after like a visit, but. I think just the call of the ocean when she got onto the strand was too much. And so, yeah, I think it was a really good tale about not everyone knows what they want at all times. Um, things change. Lots of things affect our perceptions of the world. So, yeah, I think it's a good story. Um, and I think the um, idea of being a little lost is a good point to make um, because we're all human and we all make mistakes. Um, Thus, with characters being human, it can be kind of easy to relate to them in a sense, or not, depending on how you feel. Personally, uh, I identify with Dick in the character just because he's a lonely guy who finally gets his chance at, his, at a woman. Um, but with being lonely most of his life, he loses that kind of experience of understanding a woman and is still left um, not understanding what happened at the end of the story when he finds his wife missing. Um, for the other partners of my group, it might be kind of hard to relate to uh, the marrow in the story just because she's a fictional creature. I'm kind of interested on how they can kind of fit themselves to that category. Reed? So I think I personally actually do identify with the marrow, Zach, um, because even when things were good, I think she still struggled with her life. She missed her home under the sea. She did love her children. She did love Dick, like I said earlier, but that doesn't take away the hole that was left when she was forced to stay on land. Um, it shows that you don't have to be perfectly content with your life all the time, and that's okay. It's okay to wonder. It's okay to think about, hey, what if, what if, what if? So I identify with her, and so even though she did abandon her children in the end, I think it wasn't something she consciously did. I think 
it just shows that you don't know where your path is going. Like with the magic that happened to her, she was called back to the ocean. Um, and you're called in certain directions, whether you like it or not. And I think that's something really important for us as people who are growing up to realize that sometimes things happen and you just got to keep on going with the punches. Spencer? I also identified with the marrow for a slightly different reason. She missed her family, which is why uh, when she had the opportunity to go back to them, she did. I can relate to that. Um, I think that if I were forced to be away from my family, that I would really miss them. And had given the opportunity, I would go back to visit or um, to, to live with them. That's a really key part in the story that we're reading. Um, is there anything besides that that stands out to you, Spencer? Yeah, um, other than the existence of marrows and magical caps, the story seems to be pretty realistic compared to most fairy tales. A lot of the times uh, in fairy tales, things seem to happen coincidentally, and everything is like pretty lucky, like uh, there's just good timing. In this story, um, there wasn't really a lot of that. Um, it wasn't a good time for the marrow to find her cap necessarily. Like she had already had a family. It would have been more convenient for her to find her cap um, before she started her family so she wouldn't be sacrificing so much um, and having to choose between two parts of her family. And, you know, I would have to agree with that. Uh, the simplicity of this tale stands out a lot. Um, uh, as Spencer said, there is no crazy events that seem to happen in the story. There is no crazy golden goose or giants or three bears barging into a house. It's really simple. It's a woman having an interaction with a man and just the drama of their relationship. It's a very simple, simple tale. There's no crazy tragedy, even though I understand that Dick loses his wife. Um, there is no, there's no death. There's no punishment. There's no, like we spoke of, of the uh, missing archetypes. There's no crazy reward at the end of the quest. It's just a, it's more of a life story than a tale. Yeah, I think one thing that stood out to me separately than all of that, even though those are all valid points, was um, the fact that the priest changed his mind once money was brought up. Um, that was a little detail that seemed really crucial um, to me. The fact that he protested so adamantly in the beginning, and we've talked about this before earlier in the podcast, um, I just wanted to re-bring it up, how things can influence other events down the line if the priest hadn't agreed to marry the couple, then they wouldn't have had children, so maybe Dick wouldn't have had such a heartbreak farther down the line when the Meryl leaves. Um, if the priest hadn't agreed to marry him, would Dick and the Meryl have worked out? Would they have stayed together? Would the Meryl have been as indebted to Dick as she was? No one really knows, um, but that little detail stuck out to me and just opened up a lot of other questions that I had during the story. As we get to the end of our guiding questions, one of our key questions here is, what is the work about? And rather than this question being, what is the work about? Well, of course, it's about Dick and Amaro forming a relationship together. But what is the deep underlying components of this story? What makes the story what it is? And what is the message we're trying to get here? Um, personally, I just think it's about a man's troubles with a woman. Um, it's about a man learning his way to act around women and how to treat a woman correctly. And as you see... At the beginning of the story, Dick actually shows these traits and how kind and how full of a heart he has. Um, he actually treats her with a lot of respect rather than the other fairy tales we've read, where most of the marrows or mermaids, per se, are treated with violence and disrespect and handled as property. Dick actually went 
out of his way to make sure she felt welcome, made sure she had a bed, a home. He would go out on long fishing trips to bring back food, which even makes his tragedy even larger when having to go out to provide for his family, he comes home to find his wife missing. But I don't think he really ended in a loss with that, because in the end, he did learn how to treat a woman correctly and got to cherish those memories for the rest of his life. Yeah, I thought the work was um, was about kind of a slight social commentary on women's choices and desires. Uh, we've talked about this with other tales in class. Um, and this one is a little uh, less, less intense than um, other stories, as in, or in that the Mara wasn't necessarily giving up so much. She wasn't sacrificing too much because she had... Uh, she did love Dick and she loved her family on land um, and she did have to sacrifice or she ultimately decided to sacrifice in the end that family to go back to her original family but her uh, her choice was or she was unable to make her own choice when Dick took her magical cap In my opinion, the whole moral of the story is about people finding their own free agency, like Spencer said. Um, Namero finding her voice, her power, um, finding her hat, which is actually what distinguishes her from a regular mermaid. Uh, mermaids stay with a tail, but Namero, like a selkie, has a magical item called the Kalunturif, which is the hat selkies have, the skins that they take off when they enter the land. Um, that's what distinguishes them. Um, the word marrow actually comes from combining the Irish word for seal and maid together to make sea maid or merino. Originally it referred to the female of the species, but these days it refers to both. Um, when the marrow reclaimed her power, she went back to she went back to the ocean with her family. It didn't mean she didn't love her other family. It didn't mean she didn't miss them. Um, but that was the way her life worked. And I think that's just a really good reminder that we all have that we just keep on going and life's going to throw us punches and we got to keep on rolling with them and it's not going to go the way we thought. Dick, th Dick didn't think his wife was going to leave him. Unfortunately, that's what happened and now he has to keep on living his life with his children. So I think the overall story is just being able to adapt to whatever life throws your way. And as a closing thought for all you young dating folk out there, if you're going to pick a partner, I suggest keeping it human and avoiding anything that comes out of the sea. That is, if you want the relationship to last, that is. We'll catch you next time at Archetypes and Anarchy. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Archetypes and Anarchy is produced by me, Courtney Floyd, and researched and written by my spring 2018 Introduction to Fiction students at the University of Oregon. Our theme music is Music Box by The Underscore Orchestra, and our closing music is Wolf, It's Really Rather Rad by High Arches, both of which are available under a Creative Commons license at the Free Music Archive. The sound of the wolf that lives in the woods That comes to my back door from time to time Shake the hand of the sun that burns above Reaches down over everyone Got your jekyll and hide, your monster inside Pouring water over your fire 
Darling, curl us a soul Then I need to go Back into the woods I'm told Not a single living thing Needs to be left out You can find in the garden What's missing in yourself There's a spider web That can access Connected by the number nine Can you think in visions And breathe in rhythms Dream an ocean Over your lips It brings a deeper meaning A powerful feeling Brings us the myths we're told And it's only clean water That supports the Things that we're trying to grow Not a single living cell Needs to be left out You can find in the garden What's missing in yourself Have you seen the way The speaker makes a pattern in the sand When the frequency is just right Oh man, it's really rather rare 